When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is Daniel Finkelstein sitting in for Matt Chorley and this is the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. And this morning I talked to Times and Sunday Times journalists Patrick Maguire and Gabriel Pogrand about their new book on Jeremy Corbyn and his leadership of the Labour Party and the 2019 election fiasco. Well, Jeremy Corbyn's a difficult person to know, uh, sometimes quite literally, a very senior Brown era minister, minister. When I asked what Jeremy Corbyn was like, I was a bit embarrassed that I didn't really know him, said, well, he didn't know him either because he'd never met him. He said that uh, people get to know each other in Parliament when they go through the division lobbies and Jeremy Corbyn was always voting with the Tories. And I then talked to one shadow chancellor who said that when Corbyn became leader, uh, he thought no Labour chancellor or shadow chancellor had ever met him. He can't ask John Smith, uh, but he thinks that's true. So two Times journalists, Patrick Maguire and Sunday Times Gabriel Pogrand, who are both with me in the studio, they've spent the last six months trying to get to know Jeremy Corbyn and getting to know what the voters thought of him too. And their book, Left Out, which hopefully you've seen some of in the paper this week, charts the journey of Labour's shock success at the 2017 election then down to their worst defeat at the polls in nearly 100 years in 2019. It's lucky they're here with me because I worked on two of the least successful election campaigns since 1832. Uh, And uh, Patrick and Gabriel, good morning both. Good morning, Danny. Good morning. Well, let's start with this. Tell us a little bit, both of you, what you learned in your research. Well... Um, the, the, the you know the, the Jeremy Corbyn's improbable rise to power in 2015 has been extensively told, um, but the story of um, Glastonbury to catastrophe, as we as we put it, you know that moment of heady success in the wake of the 2017 election, um, there was a promise sort of squandered both for Jeremy Corbyn, his closest allies, and his followers. They never, you know, they thought themselves as a government in waiting. Yet by 2019, they were further away from power um, than ever. Um, I suppose what we learned is. Uh, Basically, that every part, every constituent part of the Labour Party was, uh, to put it bluntly, hopeless in this period. Um, Jeremy Corbyn's office, fractured and factionalised, were torn apart over Brexit and disputes over personality. His enemies in the parliamentary Labour Party, those Labour MPs who loathed him, 
um, couldn't come up with a strategy to oppose him, nor could they come up with a strategy to chivy him along on Brexit. Um, Labour officials at HQ tried and failed to resist him um, and in the end were done over. But then even when Jeremy Corbyn's allies took control of uh, of the party, th- at that point, the, the, the project fractured. So really, it's a story of opportunities missed, ally- unlikely alliances forged on all sides, you know, friendships betrayed. Um, but in the end, every, everybody fails. Uh, it, it, and that, that's the important thing. It's not just, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's hopelessness, which is obviously is a, is a major part of the book, but everybody else around him and those opposed to it. Isn't it cheating, though? I mean, you basically know the end. Uh, and then you look back and say, uh, well, those people were all stupid. And maybe if he'd lost in 2017, you could have done that then. But they uh, they only lost narrowly in 2017. It wasn't uh, the big fiasco. So isn't it rewriting history, looking for the fiascos to explain what happened? Um, I think that in in many ways, um, Theresa May did half of the job of defeating Corbynism and Corbyn in 2017. We we know that she won seats that now form part of the so-called Red Wall, but she almost she made life more difficult for herself um, in achieving hung Parliament, and arguably she made life needlessly difficult for Corbyn in giving him this two-year stay of execution, during which period the party was sort of it was it was forced to engage with Brexit, to which it had no answer. The the whole project never sought to be about anything as technical or procedural as Brexit. Um and so I think uh, you know, perhaps people look back on the period now and um they they might have wished that they could have could have been done with it sooner. It's actually it's it's interesting because you know it's easy to look back and say this is a chronicle of failures, but I suppose we would look at it as here are the opportunities that were missed. For, for instance, in the wake of the 2017 election, Andrew Murray, who is one of Corbyn's closest advisers, who's spoken to us on the record about you know a range of subjects from Russia um, and anti-Semitism, um, you know, former member of the Communist Party um, himself, he tried and failed. For instance, just to pick one example on Brexit, he said, "Now is the moment to." for us to compromise on Brexit, for us to reach out to Theresa May. You know, she is, in his words, cocking this up Olympic style. We can look like Clement Attlee's government, unite the country. Um, And, you know, Diane Abbott at that point said, well, that's the Ramsey McCorbyn plan. We couldn't possibly do that. And then a great opportunity was missed. Um, So success wasn't beyond the Corbyn project. It was just the tensions within and without it prevented it from seizing the opportunities that could have changed the course of history. On the other hand, of course, that maybe Diane Abbott was correct. Uh, mm. Maybe that would maybe that route wouldn't have worked. Uh, maybe the problem with their position, uh, particularly on Brexit, was there was no solution. Uh, did you come across what you thought was a way of solving this problem? You, you, you showed some of the opinion polling, for example, the Liberal Democrats catching up with Labour, the fact that they, there was this dispute inside uh, Labour all the time about how to respond to it. But weren't they always making a choice that would mean losing loads of voters and there was no right choice? I think that um, something which a lot of people in Corbyn's office underestimate is the power of political leadership and the ability of great politicians to shape events and their own circumstances. And I think that in not doing anything, in merely awaiting, um, you know, an electoral catastrophe, I mean, they, they you know, they were continue to try and ride two horses at once and I think that you know they essentially underestimated what a bit of intellectual imagination might have done for them Andrew Murray at, at least came up with an idea for how Labour could try and move beyond Brexit um, and you know we, we know that uh, 
David Davis called Keir Starmer on election night in 2017, Keir Starmer was certain that because of the electoral arithmetic, David Davis must be calling to say, OK, Keir, let's do a deal, let's compromise. There's no way that we're getting through this parliament doing a deal unless we have the support of the Labour Party or a large part of the PLP. Um, and in the end, uh, David Davis was merely calling in order to inform him that they'd be staying the course and pursuing uh, the Brexit deal set out at Lancaster House. Um, and, you know, in, in this moment, if Labour had come through the middle, tried to be seen as a party which was trying to deliver Brexit in a reasonable way, life might have been more easy for them. I'll tell you one of the things that I found most arresting in the extracts I've read so far, and that is the relationship between Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, which had been so close that there's a story you've got in the book they didn't talk to each other for months. Um, so explain this to us. Is it Was it about John McDonnell's frustration with Jeremy Corbyn's inability to do what he thought he should politically? Was it Jeremy Corbyn feeling that John McDonnell was selling out? Or is there some sort of deep ideological um, difference, the sort of the people's front, Judean, Judean people's front thing that you sometimes get in political parties where outsiders can't tell, but actually there's always been, you know, for example, Corbyn's very concerned, as you put it in the book, about East Timor and John McDonnell more about uh, domestic demonstrations. What, 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 what gives us the clue to this very interesting division of opinion between them? If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Well, I think it's a, it's a combination of all three of the things you mentioned, Danny. Um, John Lundsman uh, once said something very revealing about John McDonnell, which was that he was both more ideological and more pragmatic um, than Jeremy Corbyn. McDonnell has always been obsessed with the pursuit of power. And I don't mean that pejoratively. He, he, he has existed as a backbencher. You know, he kept the parliamentary left alive at the point when Tony Blair was trying to stamp it out of existence. You know, after every budget, he wouldn't be picketing parliament outside. He'd be up there delivering an alternative, um, you know, neo-Marxist budget to basically nobody in the chamber. Um, so essentially, I think it was John McDonnell... Uh, Obviously, the, 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 this bit of the left has always had quite a thorny relationship with you know, electoral politics. But John McDonnell, once he got into power, was single-minded in his pursuit of implementing that economic programme. The economic programme, you know, the, um, 
you know, nationalising swathes of the economy was the most important thing to John McDonnell. And he saw Corbyn's preoccupations, i.e. on foreign affairs um, and the rather arcane questions of how to define anti-Semitism as an unnecessary distraction when Labour could be seizing the agenda um, with a popular economic programme in, in his eyes. And, and Corbyn's aides, uh, or aides who were closer to Corbyn and didn't agree with this, would say, well, look, up to a point that's true and we could have done we could have taken a more strategic view and we definitely could have compromised and we got sucked into rows that didn't need to happen but their view that was mcdonald was in the words of one shadow cabinet minister very close to corbyn all tactics and no strategy and this was most acute on brexit they saw you know he saw an electoral problem with the flight of remain voters to the liberal democrats they saw he was prone to overcorrect and give too much ground and um, for instance you know a great line in the book was an aide to john mcdonald said you know John would have had Jeremy on the next plane to Jerusalem if that would have solved um, the anti-Semitism problem. And in the views of Corbyn's age, this was, well, you're giving ground to the people, to our detractors. You are con- implicitly conceding their case that Jeremy is somehow beyond the pale. Well, it's interesting. So when you've been researching it, you know, there's this, uh, there's a, a Corbyn account, I suppose, that came out of um, the headquarters of the Labour Party in this leaked report, which suggests uh, the whole anti-Semitism problem was the Corbyn faction being undermined by a sort of Blairite faction on the right inside party headquarters who were delaying all these complaints, uh, not letting the leader intervene. The leader would have wanted to crack down on, on it, but they wouldn't let him do that. You know, is that does that emerge as pretty much nonsense or uh, do you find evidence to support that argument? There's no doubt that Labour's headquarters um, sought to frustrate Corbyn's leadership in general, um, and I think that the the detail of anti-Semitism cases almost does Corbyn or the party leadership a favour because the, the real question was symbolically, emotionally, could Corbyn convey that he got it? Would he convey that he got it? And we know, for instance, that people in his office were imploring him to make a speech in which he grappled with the issues, explained his intellectual hinterland and dealt with these anti-Semitism claims head on. He was actually booked to do one at the Jewish Museum in Camden, which the museum itself cancelled at the 11th hour and his aides were begging him, please do it, please do it. Um, and and it, and it never happened. You know, similarly, uh, visits to Auschwitz were, were proposed. He was going to go visit the Jews' free school, uh, Jewish state school in North London. Um, all these attempts were made by the people around Corbyn to get him to symbolically engage with this issue, and it wouldn't happen. And so um, I think the most striking thing for us was listening to how almost everybody around uh, the man himself was, was desperate for him to deal with the issue. I think uh, one, of, one of his people said to him, it doesn't help the Palestinian cause for you to die on the hill of the definition of anti-Semitism. It helps, Labour, it helps the Palestinian cause if Labour gets into government. Um, if you want to change the status quo, you've got to be in number 10 to do it. Um, and in the end, those warnings uh, fell on deaf ears. And the important thing on, on this is that almost all of Corbyn's close aides say, um, you know, this was a problem not imposed upon Jeremy Corbyn by his aides, but imposed upon the party by, by Jeremy Corbyn. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter. Um, you know, people will say... Um, you know what? What did Jeremy actually think about this stuff? But it's the you know they were frustrated by his actions. You know, fundamentally, the thing he thought was to give ground was would be to undermine the Palestinian cause, as, as Gabriel said. But, you know, Carrie Murphy is on the record in the book as saying, you know, I I never put pressure on Jeremy over the IHRI definition. This was all him 
ditto people say you know a lot of people say well surely this is Seamus Milner noted um you know an eloquent critic of the uh, conduct of the Israeli government surely this is all Seamus's fault when actually everyone around says no ultimately this was something Jeremy didn't want to give ground in that's an interesting thing at the heart of this you know a thing you know was Jeremy Corbyn a, a prisoner of his aides or or not is a question people ask well actually he did have agency as a leader and he exercised it um often in ways that sometimes undermined his own cause. I tell you uh, another um, dispute inside the Labour Party that's very difficult for outsiders to understand what you've got into is the dispute between Andrew Fisher, the policy-making guy, expelled from the party at one point, or suspended, I think I think is the correct, uh, for uh, having previously tweeted out in favour of class war, uh, and... Um, and Seamus Milne, um, whom you'd think uh, would be close allies, but I think I'm right, uh, you discover were not really. Uh, and, I, and I wonder how that intersected with this, what may have been one of the most consequential moves, the move from a 2017 manifesto, which was basically a hit, uh, to the 2019 manifesto, which was a flop. Um, do, do, are those connected or are they completely different uh, disputes? Well, I mean... I, I... At its core, they are connected in that there were, by the end, competing courts within the court of Corbyn. And I think it's certainly fair to say there was a um, an axis of sort of Jeremy, uh, Carrie Murphy and, and Seamus. And on the other side, um, certainly the way Aid saw it was that Andrew Fisher, who had worked for a very long time with John McDonnell, was more aligned with John McDonnell. Um, and so I think I think you know that there were there are also disputes over what how um, Labour should manage the economy, for instance. Do you decentralise and democratise, as John McDonnell, Andrew Fisher have always advocated, or do you go to a sort of, you know, traditional left-wing command economy where, in the words of um, Chris Leslie, the MP who split, John McDonnell is sat in his office in the Treasury working out exactly what time trains leave Euston, which is an absurd criticism, but, you know, it sort of gets to the heart of the the fundamental dispute here. Um, but I think, you know, it was as much a class of personalities as much as anything else, wasn't it? It's difficult to know whether the political flow from the personal or the personal flow from the political, there's this excruciating anecdote um, in which uh, Corbyn kind of wafted into the leader of the opposition's office and addressed Seamus Milne as as the Great Milne. This was his nickname for the man. Uh, you know, he saw him as this seer and this sage and, he, you know, he characterised him as the Great Milne uh, over the years and Andrew Fisher is purported to have said, why don't I get a nickname? And... Um, I, I think Jeremy kind of re- recoiled in awkward embarrassment. But, you know, by, by this stage, um, it was clear that the men had differing uh, approaches towards um, towards Brexit and moreover seemed to have differing levels of access to, to Corbyn himself. And Milne always remained incredibly close to Corbyn. John McDonnell sought to uh, to change his role to make him a purely strategic advisor, um, strip him of executive power... Uh, last year, and Corbyn would not have it. What about all those stories we heard uh, which said, oh, Jeremy Corbyn's fed up with the leadership, he's going to give it up and uh, go and go on to his allotment, he's not, he's, uh, he's not well, you know, all those kind of stories. I was always a bit sceptical about them, so uh, do, do your uh, inside accounts uh, vindicate my scepticism? Um, yes and no. Certainly there's sort of more lurid rumours that sort of reach the outer edges of the press. I think it's fair to say um, were rumours whipped up from whispers. But it's certainly true, and what is indisputably true, that the strains of divisions within his office, or according to Aids, rather, divisions within Jeremy Corbyn's office, um, 
you know, the, the stresses of leadership, you know, one very close head of Jeremy Corbyn said he was on a hamster wheel, essentially, from half six in the morning till 10pm at night. And Jeremy Corbyn is very physically fit for his age, but for a 70-year-old man, they said, that takes a toll on you, especially when you have aides as forceful as um, the inimitable Carrie Murphy. You know, her detractors in the office say she worked Jeremy very hard. And, you know, allies of Carrie Murphy would say, of course she did. He's the leader of the opposition. We have to work hard. Um, but I think, you know, to answer your question, it's certainly true that Jeremy Corbyn was fed up and by the end he wasn't um, at his best, according to those who know him. Um, you know, he, he wasn't in great form by the end, but that was born of... Uh, personal and political frustration with the way the project was going and the strains of managing an office um, rather than necessarily, you know, some profound breakdown. It's interesting that during many leaders' uh, tenures, we know lots about their wife. Certainly that was the case with Fionn Haig, um, uh, you know, Sarah Brown, obviously, because she was the Prime Minister's wife. We didn't hear much about Laura Alvarez until your book. And you do make her sound like quite an interesting, influential figure with quite strong uh, views that... uh, about protecting Jeremy or uh, dealing with Jeremy Corbyn's diary or uh, and such like is that is that is that a fair reading? Absolutely, I, I think there was. She certainly felt that by the end, Corbyn was not only under attack from the outside, but rather internally, many of the people who were meant to be his closest confidants started to accuse him of botching the response to anti-Semitism or failing to act on Brexit. Um, there's this moment where they're discussing Brexit policy and. Corbyn's, uh, you know, is said to have made a fairly Delphic remark and his advisers were there kind of arguing among themselves as to what he'd said rather than actually asking him to clarify the meaning of his words. I think Laura felt that Corbyn had been isolated by the people around him and um, that they weren't defending him robustly enough. Um, in particular, you know, I think she was she's wont to read a lot of the kind of hyper-partisan left-wing blogs online and would often show Jeremy Corbyn articles from from these blogs and say, you know, look, you know, th- th- these people get it. You've not done anything wrong. You need to stop apologising. You need to tell your, the people around you to stop telling you to apologise. And if they're not going to do that, then I- I'm, I'm going to back you up. Well, you can see that, how little... Uh broadcast coverage had been of her by the fact that I mispronounced her first name. So uh, let's talk, we've got, we can't leave this conversation without talking about Oatcakegate. So um, tell us a little bit what I, well, explain to listeners who are not up on their oatcakes and do not know the difference between a honey and a cheese oatcake, what on earth I'm talking about. Well, yes, this is an anecdote that was told, relayed to us by two um, close Corbyn aides who accompanied him on the campaign trail uh, during a visit to Stoke, um, uh, Stoke South, a, a marginal seat that Labour were trying and ultimately failed to win. Um, obviously, the Staffordshire Oatcake is a savoury delicacy, although if you're not from um, that particular area of the West Midlands, you would be forgiven for not knowing, as according to the account given to us by two aides, Laura Alvarez uh, didn't... Um, and sort of Jeremy was making uh, oatcakes um, as part of a photo opportunity and she intervened to um, to demand one and then sort of much um, much stress from the aides concerned um, ensued. It's, it's worth pointing out that this, um, you know, and th- these two aides claim to have, have rung ITV to, you know, make sure the footage wasn't used. Worth pointing out that ITV um, dispute this, but the aides, are, the aides are adamant it happened. But yes, you know, th- that's a sort of vignette... Um, that sort of goes some way to 
you know, explaining how farcical well, things were in the eyes of AIDS by the end. I suppose when you're doing this, though, you are, uh, when you're doing a book like this, it's incredibly impressive how quickly you've got so much information, but you are, to a degree, prisoner of your sources, prisoner of their memories, uh, prisoner of their angle. How do you untangle that? How do you make sure that you're not including in your account, um, you know, personal vendettas or uh, political uh, arguments that, um, you know, you can't even see to the end of that aren't necessarily true. How do you how do you make sure you're getting the truth? It's a great uh, reporting question, and I mean, we were certainly in a in a wilderness of mirrors by the end, um, but there were factions and micro factions and factions within factions that um, I think most people uh, w- would never have heard of. Um, I think it's fair to say we we sought to address this by uh, speaking to. Um, not only as many people as as possible, but also um, trying to get you know robust documentary evidence for that which we were asserting, and we were fortunate to be endowed with uh, an entire transcript of the uh, internal campaign WhatsApp of Corbyn's office. So um, rather than kind of alleging that uh, aides were annoyed with Corbyn, rather than alleging that Corbyn was annoyed with aides. Um, we have, you know, a lot of evidence that that bears that out, um, and so I think we try to get things which, you know, contemporaneously attest to, to underlying truths. I'm going to ask you both for your favourite anecdote in a second, but before I do, Patrick, I just wanted to ask you this. Um, okay, so we're concentrating here on the fiascos uh, of the campaign, but but I think it's only fair to say it's quite a bold, extraordinary venture, Corbyn's leadership, which may change politics permanently. It may have done exactly what the left hoped. It may have shifted the debate in this country significantly to the left. What emerges to you as the signature achievements of the Corbyn era? I think what, what we conclude is that they did precipitate a lasting change in British politics. Um, ideas that were, that the, certainly the Labour Party and indeed the Conservative Party were unwilling to discuss or countenance um, five years ago are now accepted as mainstream ideas that people can at least discuss if not propose um, as policy, but an interesting thing an aide to John McDonnell said to us, and this is this is the rub, and this is I, I think where um, you know Corbynites sort of have to have a sort of prolonged period of self-examination. An aide to John McDonnell said to us, you know, populist politics is great; you bust open and receive wisdom, but there is no guarantee that the populism of the left is the populism that wins out. And they say, while we succeeded in breaking the consensus, it appears that the right have benefited from us rewriting the rules. So they did rewrite politics, but they might not be the ultimate beneficiaries. Okay, top anecdotes, Gabriel. You may remember that last year, um, the left tried and failed to oust Tom Watson um, as deputy leader. It was a, a terrible disaster on the eve of the party's conference. And we know that Jeremy Corbyn, at the 11th hour, told his advisers... I don't want it to happen anymore. It's going to be too explosive. It's going to ruin conference. It's going to overshadow the whole event. Um, he communicated this to two people who are very close to him in his hotel room. And they said to him, I'm sorry, Jeremy, the left decided we're, we're doing it. And so when you get into the uh, National Executive Committee meeting this evening, um, if, if, if you want to have plausible deniability, if you want to be able to look down on the camera and say, I had no idea this, this was happening, there's only one thing you can do which is I'm going to come and whisper in your ear a moment before we debate the motion about Watson's, uh, what, 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 Watson's role being abolished and you need to go stand in a toilet or a corridor outside as we <laughs> debate this. So it's proper student, student union-style stuff. And uh, we know that as he was leaving 
the room, he whispered in John Landsman's ear and thanked him for recording a delightful Rosh Hashanah video a fortnight prior to this, which Landsman, who was trying to read the runes of Corbyn's sentiments, interpreted as benediction for the plot to abolish Watson. He couldn't quite understand whether Corbyn wanted it to happen, but he assumed that this affirmation of uh, Rosh Hashanah video was enough to go for it. Right, so the Jewish New Year entered into it. Uh, Patrick? Um, Ian McNichol, who was Labour's General Secretary, the sort of bete noir of the Corbynistas, um, was Labour's General Secretary, its Chief Administrator, but he's also a black belt in karate. And now he wasn't very happy... Um, with the result of the 2017 election, although he had to pretend he was. And his very close aides recall he went into his office after Jeremy Corbyn had left and they heard an almighty crash. And before they knew it, they saw him standing over a, uh, an upended table and, a, and there was an empty jug of water on the floor. In his frustration, he had roundhouse kicked a uh, full jug of water. Uh, so that goes some way to expl- explaining the visceral contempt these people have for Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> Patrick and Gabriel, thank you very much indeed. Your book, Left Out, is now in all good bookstores and I'm sure available online as well. And uh, thank you for joining me this morning. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, You can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye.